Now in our 21st year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your all-amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1094, with a release and air date of Saturday, February 15th, 2020. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. Welcome. You have found North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Now in our 21st year of service to the amateur radio community worldwide, we are This Week in Amateur Radio. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with edition number 1094 of This Week in Amateur Radio. The ARRL Board of Directors met on January 17th and 18th in Windsor, Connecticut. We will have in-depth team coverage. The ARRL Board has granted awards and recognitions. We will tell you who the recipients are. Also, the ARRL Board has created a new HF Band Planning Discussion Group. We will tell you all about their plans. The U.S. Marines sponsor an extensive amateur radio licensing course. The FCC invites comments on its 5.9 gigahertz proceeding. There is a new documentary covering the discovery of the famous WOW signal. And this is not an everyday find. A group of German archaeologists came across a vintage Russian spy transceiver. We will tell you all about it in this week's report. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's new with all of those amateur satellites orbiting the Earth. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, talks about new bugs and problems that have recently occurred with Windows 7. Australia's own Anno Benshop, VK6FLAB, will present a talk entitled How to Take Care of Your Connectors. Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Continelli, W2XOI, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, we look back at the history and development of amateur radio call signs from 1912 to the present. Our tower climbing and antenna master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, will talk about the safest way to haul cargo up your tower. That's all straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio, takes to the air right now. Reporting from our headquarters studio overlooking the Hudson River here in frigid Albany, New York, as we went below zero today, I'm George, W2XBS. And reporting from our news bureau in Rochester, New York, I'm Dave Wilson, WA2HOY. And reporting from our news bureau, just outside Albany, New York, in the Geek Cave studio, I'm Rich Lawrence, KB2MOB. And reporting from the western Catskill Mountains in upstate New York, where we're back in the deep freeze again, I'm Don Hulick, K2ATJ. And reporting from our news bureau in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and having a clear new view of the world following successful cataract surgery, I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. 30 minutes of solid amateur radio news begins now. Meeting January 17th and 18th in Windsor, Connecticut, the ARRL Board of Directors re-elected ARRL President Rick Roderick, K5UR, to a third two-year term. Roderick outpolled the only other nominee, Pacific Division Director Jim Tiemstra, 
K6JAT 8-7. New England Division Vice Director Mike Raisbeck, K1TWF, was elected first vice president, succeeding Greg Widden, K0GW, who did not seek another term. Raisbeck was the sole nominee. A successor will be appointed to fill the vice director seat that Raisbeck has vacated. Bob Valio, W6RGG, was re-elected as second vice president as the only nominee. On a 9-6 vote, the board opted not to re-elect Howard Mickle, WB2ITX, as chief executive officer. Mickle was in the post for the last 15 months. Former ARRL chief financial officer and chief executive officer Barry Shelley, N1VXY, has come out of retirement to serve as interim ARRL CEO. He was also elected as secretary. Shelley was ARRL's CFO for 28 years and served as CEO during 2018 before his retirement following the departure of former CEO Tom Gallagher, NY2RF. The ARRL board has appointed a committee to spearhead the search for a new CEO. That panel will screen suitable CEO candidates, presenting three to the board for consideration. In other actions, former ARRL president and IARU secretary Rod Stafford, W6ROD, was elected International Affairs Vice President, succeeding Jay Bellows, K0QB, who did not seek another term. Also re-elected by the board were Treasurer Rick Niswander, K7GWM, and Chief Financial Officer Diane Middleton, W2DLM. Elected as members of the Executive Committee were Atlantic Division Director Tom Abernathy, W3TOM, Central Division Director Kermit Carlson, W9XA, Roanoke Division Director Bud Hipsley, W2RU, New England Division Director Fred Hoppengarten, K1VR, and Great Lakes Division Director Dale Williams, WA8EFK. The Executive Committee addresses and makes decisions regarding ARRL business that may arise between scheduled board meetings. Hudson Division Director Rhea Jayram, N2RJ, was elected as a member of the ARRL Foundation Board for a three-year term. Tim Duffy, K3LR, and Jim Fenstermaker, K9JF, were elected to the Foundation Board for three-year terms as non-ARRL board members. Now for a close-up look at amateur radio topics covered at the ARRL board meeting, we go to our own Rich Lawrence, KB2MOB. The board considered relief from private land use restrictions. The Ad Hoc Legislative Advocacy Committee provided the board with drafts outlining three legislative approaches to address relief for radio amateurs facing private land use restrictions impacting outdoor antennas. The board signed off on the draft legislative approaches as presented and possibly modified and directed the committee to proceed to obtain congressional sponsorship employing any of these three approaches and using its best judgment on any alterations or modifications that our advisors or sponsors may require or suggest. On the topic of HF band planning, outgoing chair of the HF band planning committee, Greg Wyden, K0GW, presented the panel's report and entertained questions. Board members noted that staff turnover and funding limitations at the FCC might impact ARRL's efforts to tweak the bands. The board agreed that ARRL would post the report and solicit comments from members on it. Considering contests and operating awards, 
The board approved raising the maximum number of contacts a field day go-to station can make to 1,000. It amended the ARRL Ready Roundup rules to add multi-two and multi-multi categories and to permit multi-operator stations to operate for the entire contest period. And it divided entry categories into Ready Only, Digital Only, No Ready, and Mixed, both Ready and Digital. Matt Holden, K0BBC, presented the DX Advisory Committee report, telling the board that the panel engaged in extensive discussion on a proposal to change the five-band DXCC award from the current required bands to offer credit for any five bands. The committee unanimously rejected the proposal. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Now with more on what the ARRL board covered at its latest meeting, we go to our own Will Rogers, K5WLR. Thanks, Rich. Concerning ARRL elections, the board revised rules governing ARRL division and section manager elections to clarify some terminology, to extend the campaign period from the call for nominations to the deadline for ballots received, and to make other miscellaneous changes. Revisions will become effective by February 15, 2020. In the interest of openness and fairness, the board also approved a measure that would offer candidates and members an opportunity to be present during the counting of ballots. Candidates also may designate one ARRL member to attend as a surrogate if they are unable to observe ballot counting or to accompany them at the count. The board further approved an amendment to permit ARRL members upon petition, to travel at their own expense to witness the counting of ballots from their division. The board charged the Programs and Services Committee to consider changes to the ARRL bylaws that would give members upon petition the opportunity to attend the public portion of the annual meeting in January. The number of members permitted to attend would be subject to available space and fire code regulations. The Public Service Enhancement Working Group Chair, Roanoke Division Director Bud Hippisley, W2RU, reported that with field adoption of the 2019 ARIES plan that is now underway, the group is putting increased focus on the national traffic system, including plans for dialogue with representatives of Radio Relay International. In consideration of reduced dues for younger applicants, the board approved an amendment giving the CEO discretion to raise the eligibility age for reduced full ARRL membership dues from 22 to 26, provided the rate not be less than one-half of the established rate. In addition, the board approved the establishment of a reduced-rate, revenue-neutral life membership for individuals age 70 or older with cumulative annual membership of 25 years or more at an initial rate of $750. Headquarters staff will work out the administrative details of the program subject to approval of the Administration and Finance Committee. The board also agreed to allow for a digital-only access membership at the discretion of the CEO, discounted no more than 10% from the established dues rate. 
In other business, the board approved a grant of $500 to the youth on the air in the Americas program, which is sponsoring a camp in June for young radio amateurs. Neil Rapp, WB9VPG, a former ARRL youth coordinator, is heading the initiative, which is funded through the nonprofit Electronic Applications Radio Service, Incorporated. The board authorized creation of an Emergency Management Director Selection Committee with its chair and members to be named by the President. The minutes of the January annual meeting of the ARRL Board of Directors are posted on the ARRL website. Meeting January 17th and 18th, the ARRL Board of Directors bestowed several honors, awards, and recognitions. The ARRL President's Award on David H. Bernstein, AA6YQ, in recognition of exemplary, outstanding, and continuing service to ARRL as part of the ARRL Logbook of the World Team. Bernstein was a charter member of the ARRL Logbook Committee and a founding, influential, and devoted member of the Committee on Communications with ARRL members. The 2019 Bill Leonard W2SKE Professional Media Award for audio reporting to Roman Battaglia, the Indy Associated Producers and Staff of Jefferson Public Radio in Oregon. Battaglia produced a featured story on amateur radio emergency services in and around the Jefferson Public Radio listening area. The 2019 Bill Leonard W2SKE Professional Media Award for print reporting went to Zach Player and the Columbus and Starkville Dispatch in Mississippi. Player wrote a feature for the paper describing how amateur radio had proven fulfilling to various participants, including new and experienced radio amateurs. The 2019 Bill Leonard W2SKE Professional Media Award for Video Reporting went to reporter Jim Altman and the affiliated producers and staff of Fox 61 News in Hartford, Connecticut. Altman's report, the American Radio Relay League Ready for Hurricane Season, focused on ARRL's participation in a May 2019 emergency drill conducted in association with the American Red Cross. The board recognized and thanked the Delaware Valley Radio Association of New Jersey and the Clark County Radio Amateur Club of Vancouver, Washington for their 90 years of assistance in fulfilling the ARRL mission of advancing the art, the science, and enjoyment of amateur radio within their community. The board bestowed the honor of Honorary Vice President on John B. J. Bellows, K0QB and on Greg Wyden, K0GW, in recognition of their outstanding contributions to ARRL and amateur radio. ARRL has created a new HF Band Planning Discussion Group. HF Band Planning Committee Chair Mike Raisbeck, K1TWF, will moderate the group, which will focus on the ARRL HF Band Planning Committee's recommendations and other band planning activities. Earlier this month, the ARRL HF Band Planning Committee invited comments and suggestions from the amateur radio community on its report to the ARRL Board. At the Board's January meeting, the committee presented its specific recommendations in graphical form for each HF Band and each U.S. license class, with the goal of increasing harmony in the HF Bands, particularly between CW and digital users. Those responding to the initial call for comments and suggestions are encouraged to cross-post their remarks to the new HF Band Planning Discussion Group. United States Marines with Information Group 2 Marine Expeditionary Force 2, MIG, participated in an amateur radio general licensing course January 27th through the 31st on base as part of the group's high-frequency auxiliary initiative. 
Members of the Brightleaf Amateur Radio Club of Greenville, North Carolina, help the Marines in the class learn the principles of HF radio operations as a contingency against a peer-to-peer -peer adversary in real-world operations. During the course, Marines learned ham radio theory, band allocations, conventional and field expedient antenna theory, and general ham radio operation and control. Two MIG commanding officer Colonel Jordan Walzer created the High Frequency Auxiliary Initiative after recognizing the need for additional options in combat environments. Right now, our adversaries are aggressively pursuing counter space weapons to target our satellites and ground stations, Walzer is quoted in the article. If our satellites get knocked out, what do we do then? High Frequency Radio has been around for well over a century and is still used today. Why? Because it's a reliable, low-cost alternative to satellite communications. With the right training and education, a Marine with a radio and some slash wire can communicate over the horizon for long distances, even between continents. As an example, in late January, Marines at Base Camp Pendleton in California logged a successful contact some 6,000 miles away with radio operators at Camp Schwab in Okinawa, Japan. The hams in California were operating mobile from the mountains just outside the base camp, transmitting on HF using a field expedient antenna. Corporal Shelton Needham, a field radio operator, praised the antenna for the value it brings to mobile operations. The Marines noted this was the first such long-distance radio call in many years for operators at Camp Pendleton, and it gave them renewed confidence in this kind of communication if other modes, such as satellites, are attacked or otherwise taken offline. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. The FCC has invited comments on a notice of proposed rulemaking in WT Docket 19-138, which said the FCC would take a fresh and comprehensive look at the rules for the 5.9 gigahertz band. The FCC proposes to make 5.850 to 5.895 gigahertz available for unlicensed operation and to authorize transportation related to communications technologies to use the 5.895 to 5.925 gigahertz. The FCC is not proposing to delete or otherwise amend the 5 centimeter secondary amateur radio allocation at 5.650 to 5.925 gigahertz part of which includes the 75 megahertz under construction. Comments are due by March 6th, and reply comments are due by April 6th. The ARRL will be filing comments supporting no change to the 5.850 and 5.925 gigahertz for amateurs, as included in the FCC proposal. The Radio Amateurs of Canada Board of Directors has named Carrie Rubenfeld, VE4EA, of Winnipeg, Manitoba, as the recipient of the 2019 RAC Amateur of the Year Award. The award recognizes his tireless efforts to promote amateur radio in his home province of Manitoba, throughout Canada, and internationally, the RAC said. Rubenfeld is a founding member of Radio Sport Manitoba. 
He was also a driving force behind Discover the HF Experience in 2016, which invited non-hams, new hams, and even old-timers to discover first-hand HF radio in the 21st century by getting on the air and operating remote stations. He is a longtime member of the Winnipeg Amateur Radio Club and has organized and led the club's annual field day for the past several years, using the opportunity to encourage HF operation for those with little or no experience. Carey has become the face of VE4 on the international scene, RAC said in announcing the award. A regular attendee at the Dayton Hamvention and a guest at the last World Radio Sport Team Championship event in Germany, he mingles and establishes a personal relationship with amateurs from around the world. The popular QRZ.com amateur radio website has dropped its verified member program, which the site instituted last year in an effort to combat fraud and password fishers. Termination of the program was due to a number of factors. The site's founder and president, Fred Lloyd, AA7BQ, explained in a post. Lloyd said the change will transition our online swap meet rules to reflect more open policies. The site had offered the option of establishing two-factor authentication for its registered users, which would then secure a user's password on the site. The site introduced two-factor authentication last June and later the verified member program. While a two-factor authentication has worked well, the identified verified program hasn't worked as well as we'd hoped, he said. There has been a net decrease in swap beat traffic, primarily due to members not wishing to take the extra steps to get verified. The swap meet did seem to get safer, but also notably quieter. The forum has lost some of the excitement that it used to be known for. Lloyd said the identity verified program was designed to provide extra levels of confidence to the swap meet participants, but in practical terms, its validation methods were not sustainable. Not only was it an administrative burden, Lloyd explained, but the majority of its participants were only complying reluctantly. The bottom line was it's been unpopular. Lloyd said that by dropping the identity verified requirement, QRZ expects to see an increase in equipment listings and greater participation. Individuals listing equipment will still need to provide photos of the actual items for sale, and photos must include the seller's call sign, only HAM members, those having a listed call sign page may sell in the swap meet. Those perusing the listings will generally be allowed to post comments or questions about any listing. Swap meet users will be responsible for vetting their own deals and parties, Lloyd added. There will be plenty of online advice for those who are new to the online trading. QRZ is not responsible for the success or failure of any transaction between private parties using its public swap meet forum. When it comes to your deal, you must regard QRZ as a non-participant. In other words, if the deal goes bad, it's not QRZ's fault, and in general, we won't be able to help you. Lloyd said the QRZ does not save documents that were provided for user identification. The two-factor authentication will remain an option, but swap meet users will not be required to use it. The FCC now requires all wireless devices sold in the U.S., including ham radio equipment, to demonstrate that even at maximum power, their RF exposure is below the minimum allowable level of Specific Absorption Rate, or SAR, for safety. A recent test of mobile phones' RF levels, however, has raised doubts about the testing process itself. In an investigation conducted last year by RF Exposure Labs for the Chicago Tribune newspaper, a number of phones from Apple, Samsung, and Motorola 
were discovered to exceed the FCC's SAR limit. A subsequent investigation done by the FCC, however, failed to corroborate those findings. The lab used phones purchased from retailers. The FCC received its phones directly from the manufacturers themselves. In a more recent test, by the lab for Penumbra Brands, which sells mobile phone protection devices, found an iPhone 11 Pro also exceeded the allowable levels. That test drew its conclusions based on the study of a single phone that had been purchased at retail. The trade newsletter Spectrum reported on these developments on its website on February 7th. None of the phone's manufacturers were reached for comment. A University of California Berkeley researcher told the IEEE, however, that regardless of whose findings end up being valid, the real fix needs to be made at the FCC. Researcher Joel Moskowitz said the agency's testing for RF exposure needs to be made more comprehensive and brought into the 21st century. Online orders for Dayton Hamvention 2020 tickets, inside exhibit spaces, and flea market spots can now be placed online. Those who ordered online in 2019 should have their user IDs and passwords available when placing orders. Hamvention's all-volunteer staff will work as quickly as possible to respond to your order. If you encounter difficulties, email the appropriate committee. Tickets, inside exhibits, or flea market. Hamvention announced in December it would be increasing the cost of admission and its booth fee. General admission is now $26 in advance, or $31 at the gate for all three days. The cost of flea market spots has risen by $5 per space and includes inside exhibitors that will be paying $30. Hamvention 2020 takes place May 15th through the 17th at the Greene County Fairgrounds and Exhibition Center, 210 Fairground Road in Xenia, Ohio. The 2020 Northeast Ham Exposition, formerly known as Boxborough, is moving and will take place July 24th through the 26th at the Best Western Royal Plaza Hotel and Trade Center in Marlborough, Massachusetts, about 15 miles from Boxborough off Interstate 495, exit 24A. The Northeast Ham Exposition, which had been held in early September in past years, hosts the ARRL New England Division Convention. The new venue offers us much-needed additional capacity for forums, a larger flea market, and ample parking right in the hotel's main lot, said event chairman Bob DeMattia, K1IW. For those staying at the convention hotel, your room rate includes a complimentary breakfast buffet. We will announce very soon when the hotel is accepting reservations. DeMattia pointed out that the Marlboro location has a lot to offer, including dozens of restaurants in the vicinity and the new Apex Entertainment Center on Route 20, adjacent to the hotel. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a stream to your favorite digital device on Spotify, TuneIn.com, Overcast, iHeartMedia, and wherever you download your podcasts.
And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. So, uh, another Windows 7 bug. Uh, what, what was it? It was uh, almost a month ago now, right? April 14th, or January 14th, that uh, Windows 7, Microsoft said, this is it, this is it, the last update you're going to get. You're not going to get any more, and we spent a lot of time the last few months talking about alternatives. Most people, probably still the case, can just upgrade for free to Windows 10, even though Microsoft doesn't mention that. They didn't stop it, and so if you've got a Windows 7 machine, it might be worth upgrading to Windows 10. Just download Windows 10 from Microsoft. Don't get it from somebody else. They'll say, what's your serial number? I say, I don't know. It doesn't matter. And you just install it on top of Windows 7. If it's an operating, authenticated, you know, official version of Windows 7, it shouldn't be any problem. It might be a good idea now. This is the second bug <laughs> since Microsoft said, but we're not going to fix them anymore. They fixed the last one. It was a silly bug, but weird. And you have to wonder how these things are occurring after 10 years of fixing and patches all of a sudden. So the first bug was a wallpaper bug. If you choose... I can't remember, was it fit to screen or stretch? Probably think it was stretch. If you choose, to, so you picked a picture for your wallpaper and you said, let's stretch it so it fills the screen, you, you would, your wallpaper would turn black. Okay, not the end of the world, by the way. If you set it to anything else, it would be fine. Not the end of the world. But now there's another one. And this is actually maybe not the end of the world, but may, pretty serious. Windows 7 users have started reporting that when they shut down, they say shut down Windows 7. This, you know, that's the kind of thing people don't do that often. But when you do it, you'll get a pop-up that says you don't have permission to shut down this computer. <laughs> what? <laughs> what do you mean? It's my computer. No. <laughs> now, it's possible Microsoft will fix this one. At some point, Microsoft's going to say, look, we told you. We told you we weren't going to do this anymore. Can we just move on? But you have to wonder. I mean, foolishly, I admit, I said a few weeks ago, well, that's you probably are all right because, after all, Windows 7 has been fixed and fixed again over the last 10 years, lots of patches. There's probably no bugs left. Boy, was I, was I wrong. <laughs> How did, what does this come from? No one knows. There are a couple of weird workarounds. So you create, an, one is you create another admin account. You log into that account. Or if you already have another admin account, you log into that. Then you log back into the default admin account and then you shut down. <laughs> okay. What, this is a strange bug, isn't it? There is also, of course, a GP edit fix, but I don't, I, most people don't have GP edit and certainly don't want to use it. So. Microsoft fixed the broken wallpaper, which was dopey. This one's more serious, not being able to shut down your computer. And, of course, you know what people are going to do. They're going to reach around to the wall and unplug it. No, don't do that. Oh, that's, a, that's a recipe for disaster. Or, you, you know, maybe this might be marginally better. You press and hold the on-off button on your computer until it just turns itself off. I have never, I have never seen this. So what this, what this really tells you, if you read between the lines, is what a mess windows 7 is what a mess windows 7 is because after 10 years of fixes and patches you would think every possible you know bug like this would have been caught and fixed the fact that new ones are cropping up well it's hard to say since we don't know the cause but it tells me that this is the worst spaghetti we call it in the industry they call it spaghetti code not because it's got yummy tomato sauce on it but because it's you can see spaghetti all tangled up and the problem is you're not 
a good programming practice <laughs> would be that you would write a routine, a bit of a code or something, in such a way that a change in that bit of code doesn't affect other code out there, other stuff. But apparently, that's not – and spaghetti code, of course, it's like the butterfly effect. You flap your wings in one area and everything breaks, and apparently <laughs> – that's that's the status of Windows 7. Maybe Microsoft's right in saying, yeah, we don't want to fix this anymore. But here's the bad news. Windows 10 is mostly Windows 7. I know there's been Windows 8 and 8.1 between it, but no, it's mostly Windows 7, as, is, as was Windows 8 and Windows. They just, they don't start from scratch. You don't, I mean, you know that, right? They don't, wouldn't that be nice? Throw that old spaghetti code out. Let's make something nice, modern, you know, with all the well, we everything we've learned over the last forty years of operating system design, let's do something really slick and secure. No, they don't do that. They say, okay, take the old stuff, put some bondo there, some spackle there, fresh coat of paint over there. Hey, Windows ten. Ta-da! Um, so you so chances are the the same kind of bad coding practice. By the way, that's why we have all these security flaws. It's the same thing. There's a thin line between a, a flaw that makes your wallpaper turn black when you stretch to fit and a, and a, and a bug that allows ransomware to uh, enter your computer without your permission. There's a very thin line there. It's kind of depressing, to, to, frankly, that we the whole world is is running on this stuff, this, this ancient antiquated code base. Why, you might ask, I ask this all the time, uh, isn't, aren't companies working on you know, fresh operating. Let's start over. You know, you built a beautiful house. Nice. Very nice. You're telling everybody move out of that house and then move back in after we paint it, basically. Why don't we tell everybody move out of that house into this nice house we started from the ground up from scratch? Well, there's a few reasons. One, it takes years. From the Microsoft point of view, uh, they don't want to do that because they don't want to break all the other programs that run on Windows, right? That's one of the Actually, one of the problems Microsoft has is they always want everything to keep working, including the program that you bought for Windows Vista in 1998, or I guess maybe even maybe even earlier, a long time ago, uh, maybe 2000. And uh, that, they want that to still run 20 years later. They really do. And that's the problem. They can't just start over. Google has a new project they're working on, a new operating system they call Fuchsia. Bad name. I'm sorry. I don't want fuchsia on my computer. What is that? It's like a it's like a hot pink kind of a. Ugh. But that's what they call it. And uh, maybe you know, remember, remember Apple for a while was working with IBM to with to create a new operating system. They called Project Pink. Maybe there's something about that. What color is fuchsia? Oh, it's purple. It's a purple red named after the fuchsia plant. Still ugly. I don't want my I don't want my computer to be purple red. <laughs> Anyway, they're working on it from ground up. Um, they're doing it more for, I think, we don't know, but I would suspect more for commercial reasons because Oracle, which owns the Java programming language, which much of Android's based on, has been suing Google. In fact, it's in the Supreme Court now, saying, you stole it, and you're going to want to give me billions of dollars. And Google's probably thinking, oh, man, if we just had our own. So they're going to, they're, they're working on that. I bet you somewhere deep within Microsoft, there's some guy, some poor guy, probably in the basement, writing a, a new operating system. But will it ever see the light of day? I don't know. What about Apple? Mm-hmm. They got a new operating system. They really, you know, they had an advantage because in the 19, well, I guess not, back in the 1900s, 
<laughs> when Steve Jobs came back, he brought the next operating system with him. That was kind of newish, you know, written in 1994. <laughs> That's new in the operating system world. That's new. And, uh, and they've been willing to kind of cut off people, you know, say, well, for instance, their newest operating system, Catalina, their big update to Mac OS, says if it's a 32-bit program, an older program, it's just not going to run anymore. See, my, you know, Microsoft would never do that. But Apple's at least, you know, I guess maybe because they have a smaller user base. I don't know. They don't. They're willing to do that. And that's helped them a little bit. But even then, Mac OS, it's starting to look a little old. I think it'd be nice to get a new version, write something new from the scratch. And I bet you Apple's doing that too. It's just hard. Not, hard, not only not hard to do, but hard to introduce and say to everybody using your computer, yeah, throw out the old. Let's in with the new. We got a new house down the street. Brand new. State-of-the-art architecture. And if you're using Windows 7, don't call me because it's <laughs> I can't I can't help. I'm sorry. I just I don't <laughs> I feel like I understand. I do understand Microsoft's point of view. Like, yeah, no, no, you get you get a new version. I don't I can't think of what would cause that, except you don't have permission to shut down your computer. What could that be? I mean, some, we've seen it before, but long time ago, for many years, actually, we've seen computers that won't shut down. That's not at all unusual. But a computer that pops up, something says, well, you, you don't have permission to shut down. That's weird. Anyway, I'm glad you were here, and I'm here, and I'll be here next week, and I hope you'll come by and bring your friends, too, as we talk high-tech. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history? I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY. And I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives here on This Week in Amateur Radio. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. Welcome to the Ancient Amateur Archives. I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, WN2MAM, WB2MAM, N2CLO, KE2XB, AB2CA, W2XOY. Okay, as you can probably guess, with all the attention on the vanity call sign system, not to mention the half dozen calls that I've held since 1969, this edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives is going to focus on call signs in amateur radio history. Prior to 1912, getting a call sign was easy. Just make one up and get on the air. Legend has it, that's how the word ham came to mean amateur radio. The letters H am were allegedly the initials of the three operators of a powerful station in the early teens. With the passage of the Radio Act of 1912, the first licenses were issued. Call signs at that time for private stations, i.e. amateurs, consisted of a number followed by two or later three letters. For example, 1AW, 1TS, 8XK, etc. 
other countries adopted the system. This was adequate in the early days of Spark and amateur radio, but as the shortwaves were developed and CW became universal, problems appeared. Dave Sumner, Executive Vice President of the ARRL and Trustee of NU1AW, the station of the International Amateur Radio Union, states, When transoceanic amateur communications started becoming commonplace in 1924, a problem immediately became apparent. Call signs were all of the one numeral followed by two or three letters format with no built-in means of determining who was where. At first, an informal system of prefixes, called intermediates at the time, was used by amateurs, where the letter A stood for Australia, B for Belgium, C for Canada, F for France, G for Great Britain, J for Japan, U for the United States, Z for New Zealand, etc. The single-letter system was fine until it became apparent that amateur radio was spreading to too many countries for this system to accommodate. In the January 1927 QST, a new intermediate list was unveiled as the work of the Executive Committee of the International Amateur Radio Union. The new list took effect on February 1, 1927. It was a two-letter system with the first letter indicating the continent, E for Europe, A for Asia, N for North America, F for Africa, etc., and the second letter indicating the country mostly following the old system. Thus, stations in the 48 United States used the intermediate NU. The new system was quickly overtaken by events. The regulations adopted by the Washington International Radio Telegraph Conference later the same year included the allocation of a series of call signals such as K, N, and W for the United States and mandated that stations have a call signal from the series. The Washington regulations were to become effective on January 1, 1929, but in August 1928, QST noted that the Canadian amateur call signs had changed to VE in April, and in September 1928, QST announced the effective date of October 1, 1928 in the United States for the W prefix and K outside the 48 states. Thus, amateurs sported voluntary NU prefixes for just 20 months before they became Ws. The founding president of the International Amateur Radio Union was, of course, Hiram Percy Maxim, 1AW, who remained in that office until his death in 1936. The call sign NU1AW commemorates Hiram Percy Maxim and the International Amateur Radio Union's creative, if short-lived, solution to the problem of international identification of stations. As trustee of NU1AW, Dave Sumner states that it is his intention to use the call sign as a permanent special event station operating in connection with World Telecommunication Day, significant IARU activities, the IARU HF World Championship, and other events that will call attention to the contributions of the IARU to organized amateur radio. My thanks to K1ZZ for allowing me to use the above. Thus, the call sign structure was set up for the rest of the 1920s and the 1930s. Stations in the 48 states had a 1x2 or 1x3 call sign beginning with W and containing a numeral from 1 to 9. Stations in Alaska, Hawaii, or other U.S. possessions had a K prefix. Incidentally, note that I said 1 through 9. 
This is because the numeral zero was not available to amateurs at that time. As a result, the call sign districts had different boundaries than they do today. For example, the western sections of New York and Pennsylvania were in the 8th call district then, as opposed to the 2nd and 3rd today. Southern portions of New Jersey were in part of the 3rd call district rather than the 2nd. When amateur radio resumed after World War II, the increased number of amateurs necessitated the addition of the 10th call district and the numeral zero. Except for the redrawing of the boundaries, things remained the same until 1951-1953 era. In 1951, the FCC eliminated the old Class A, Class B, and Class C licenses and replaced them with the Novice, Technician, Conditional, General, and Extra Class. What happened to the Advanced Class? The Ancient Amateur Archives will tell you in a future edition. With this change came the first distinctive call signs. Novices, who at that time could only get a one-year non-renewable license, had a special 2 by 3 call sign with the letter N following the W. For example, WN2ODC, WN6ISQ, WN2MAM, etc. When they upgraded, the N would be dropped. This system barely had a chance to settle in before the next change hit in 1953. Due to the increase in the number of amateurs, the FCC was running out of W 1x3 call signs. So 1x3K calls began to appear in the 48 states, with the U.S. possessions receiving 2x2 and 2x3K calls, such as those issued today. Novices in the 48 states continued to have the distinctive N call, such as KN4LIB, with the N disappearing upon upgrading. Barely five years later, the growth of amateur radio, particularly in the 2nd and the 6th call districts, caused another problem for the FCC. They were running out of K and W calls. So, in 1958, the FCC began issuing 2x3 WA calls to be followed by WB when necessary. For some reason, novices under this new system were given WV, as in Victor, instead of WN as their prefix. The V would change to an A or a B upon upgrading. After only a few years of this, the FCC decided that their original idea was better, chucked the Vs, and went back to the novice N prefix. With the uneven amateur population in the 10 call districts, it took time for the K calls to run out in the other areas. As late as 1964, you could still get a K call in the first, third, or seventh call areas, while the second and the sixth districts were well into the WBs. The 1960s had some other call sign oddities. For a period of time, you could hold both a novice and technician class license simultaneously. The FCC gave you two call signs at once, such as WA2ORS, WN2ORS, and you use the appropriate call based on the amateur band and your privileges on it. The FCC also allowed you to have two calls if you maintained two homes and separate call areas. For example, Senator Barry Goldwater, K7UGA, also held K3UIG, which he used when he was in Washington. In theory, under this system, an amateur could hold four call signs if he or she had a novice and technician license and two separate addresses. Except for the novice and the distinctive N, there was no way under this system to tell what class of license an amateur held. As older hams became silent keys and the number of available 1x2 calls slowly increased, 
the FCC instituted a program whereby those who held an extra class license for more than 25 years would be eligible for a one by two. The length of time one needed to be an extra was gradually reduced until July 1977 when any extra class could apply for a one by two. There was one block of call signs that were unavailable to any amateur regardless of license class. These were calls in which the suffix began with X, such as W1XW, W3XCV, WB6XXK, etc. The FCC reserved these calls for experimental stations. For example, W2XBS, W2XOY, W1XMN, and KE2XCC were originally call signs of early TV and FM broadcast stations. While the FCC has relaxed their position on the 1x2 and 1x3x suffix calls, the 2x3 call signs such as KA6XYZ are still reserved for experimental use. By the mid-1970s, the 2nd, 4th, 6th, and 8th call areas had run out of WBs. For a period of time, the FCC recycled older WA and WB calls that had been vacated, but when those ran out, they went to WDs. Now, WCs were reserved for and being issued to races and civil defense stations. Before the WD prefix could become popular, however, an incident occurred that would change the whole call sign structure. In early 1977, an FCC employee was indicted for taking bribes offered by amateurs wanting special call signs. He was convicted and sent to jail. Partially as a result of this scandal, the FCC on February 23, 1978, adopted the call sign structure we have in place today. For 18 years, from 1978 until 1996, when the vanity call system opened, it had been impossible to request a specific individual or club call. Given the passionate love affair that some of us have with our calls, the FCC has made millions. So, as you contemplate the call of your dreams, take a moment to tune in NU1AW and work a piece of history. Meanwhile, the ancient amateur archives is preparing for its next journey to another moment in amateur radio history. I hope you're on board. Your time is up. Go in peace. But return again for our next installment of the Ancient Amateur Archives. I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. This is the propagation forecast for Friday, February 14th. We had no sunspots this week and none yet in the forecast either. And the solar flux index has dipped to about 70. So if you're participating in the big ARRL International DX contest this weekend, better set your sights on 80, 40, and possibly 20 meters. There may be some geomagnetic disruptions over the next several days, but those effects should be relatively mild. On VHF and UHF, we have some tropo openings in the forecast for well into the following week. 
Most of this activity is going to be concentrated in southern Alabama, Georgia, northern Florida, and South Carolina. And now with this week's satellite update, here's Bruce Page, KK5DO. Robert, KE4AL, AMSAT VP of User Services, has come up with a project. He calls it AMSAT Link, a three-phased program to ultimately establish a constellation of nanosatellites, all linked in a peer-to-peer voice communications network. The beauty of this is that they will be in the amateur portion of the 2.4 gigahertz microwave band using 802.11 wireless ad hoc network. This is not a new idea, as NASA had PhoneSat, EDSN Constellation, and Nodes missions. After the initial phase of three satellites are launched, more can be added as needed to expand the network. Absolute timing obtained from GPS. If one endpoint cannot see its desired destination, but can see nodes in between, the data will hop from one to the next until the final connection is made. This is only the beginning and is only a paper on the topic. Feasibility, launch availability, etc. will be studied. This may very well be the next project for AMSAT. More on this as the project develops. Thanks to Robert, KE4AL, for the suggestion. This is Bruce Page, KK5DO. In DX News, a number of DX operations will be wrapping up over the next several days. These include 9N7AM in Nepal, TX4N and TX4VK in French Polynesia, and VP2MEP in Montserrat. If you need Vietnam, you have until the 20th to catch 3W2MAE. 5H3DX will be on the air shortly from Tanzania and will be active until March 16th. 6W7-ON4AVT will also be active from Senegal until mid-March. Starting February 20th, listen for 8QVHK on the bands from the Maldives, VK9NR from Norfolk Island, and of course, the long-anticipated VP8PJD expedition to the South Orkney Islands. We have an active weekend coming up for special event stations. W1M will be on the air from Russell, Massachusetts for Scout Camps on the Air. Listen for W0EBB from Leavenworth, Kansas for the Freeze Your Keys Winter Operating Event. W5BMC in Morgan City, Louisiana will be on the air for the 15th Annual Eagle Expo. K4US in Alexandria, Virginia will be celebrating George Washington's birthday and N4HLH will be operating the H.L. Hunley Commemorative Station from Charleston, South Carolina on Monday the 17th. Next weekend, listen for WS7G February 21st through the 23rd for their George Washington's birthday celebration, and also keep an ear out for K7T on February 22nd as they operate from the Titan Missile Museum in Tucson, Arizona. You'll find complete details in the February issue of QST Magazine. Charles 5H3DX NK8O and Fred 5H3AX N8AX will be operating in Tanzania between February 24th and March 21st from Zinga Pwani region. Maximum power in Tanzania is 100 watts, but they will be using a variety of antennas including some directional verticals. They plan to operate 160 through 10 meters, conditions permitting. While CW will be the primary mode, they may be found from time to time on FT8 and or JS8 call. 
BSK-31 operation is also on the agenda. Operations will be holiday-style since there will be other goals and responsibilities for the trip. Direct QSLs via NK-80. See the QRZ page for 5H3DX for details. Foundations of Amateur Radio If you've ever found yourself in the position of attempting to screw a PL-259 into an SO-239 or an N-type plug into an N-type socket, you'll have likely come across the situation where the thread doesn't quite fit. If it does, you might have issues attempting to undo the connection, even if you didn't particularly do anything strenuous in relation to mating the two in the first place. This kind of situation happens to me more than I think is reasonable. It happens on cheap connectors, on expensive ones, on the back of radio gear, on adapters, patch leads and the like. Initially I put this down to cheap versus expensive, but that really doesn't add up if you're attempting to connect an expensive plug into an expensive radio. If you're into machining, you'll know about Swarf. If not, think metallic dust. Of course it doesn't have to be metallic, it could be a single grain of sand, or it could be a slightly damaged thread. A couple of months ago I went on the hunt for a tap and die set that would solve this issue once and for all. If you're not familiar with the terms, a tap is like a long bolt with a square head and a die is like a thick washer with holes cut out. In addition to being hardened, they each have cutting edges, which allows these two tools to do their job, the job of cutting threads. Normally you'd use a tap to make a thread into a hole that you've drilled. You'd use a die to make a thread onto a rod that you have. There's lots of technique associated with this, cutting fluids, alignment, pressure and the like. Plenty of relaxing YouTube videos around, which is how I came upon this idea in the first place. You can also use a tap or a die to cut across an existing thread, and you can do this with connectors. A die, threaded over a socket, will clean up the socket threads. Similarly, a tap, screwed into a plug, will clean up the plug thread. There is a disclaimer coming for that last point, but stick around. Trying to find a tap and die to match can be a challenge. The PL259, SO239 and N-type connectors are all 5 8 size threads. They're 24 turns per inch and also known as UNEF, Uniform November Echo Foxtrot threads, or Unified Extra Fine. So if you start on your hunt, you'll be looking for 5 8 24 TPI UNEF taps and dies. I found mine online at $15 or so from a US supplier, got to me in about a week. When they arrived, I immediately set about cleaning up all my sockets. This was amazing, all of a sudden stuff started fitting well. Unfortunately, I couldn't use the tap. The center hole in a standard tap isn't big enough for the pin of a PL259, let alone an N-type connector, but a friend of a friend has access to machine tools and made the center hole bigger. Word of warning, this is hardened steel, a hand drill won't cut it. I must mention that this won't allow you to use the tap inside an N-type plug, but you can use a die on the socket. I'll also point out that if you need to use a tap wrench or a die holder, you're doing it wrong. We're cleaning up the thread, not making a new one. If you need extra force, the most likely scenario is that you've cross-threaded the tool onto the connector. Of course, if you've got a completely stuffed connector thread, then these tools can help, but you might want to consider replacing the connector. 
My tap and die live in my go kit, right next to the coax adapters. On my next field day, I won't be having to deal with poor connections, nor will I have to worry about unscrewing them after the event. A tap and die. Great simple tools to fix a recurring issue. I'm Ono, Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima, Alpha Bravo. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. There are times when tower jobs we need to do require helpers assisting us on the ground and with us on the tower. These are special situations which require higher than normal levels of communication between team members. When hauling coax, antennas, sidearms, or other hardware up the tower, Never hoist hardware up the tower with someone underneath the cargo, unless they're wearing the proper safety gear and have been trained in tower work. Let's face it, on a tower, you don't get a second chance. There are at least three sides to each tower. So keep the lower climber on a different side, and besides, a freestanding tower is happier when you spread the load more evenly. So before you start to do tower work with other climbers and ground crew, stop, take a moment, and discuss with everyone exactly what you intend to do the goals to accomplish, the order the tasks will be done in, special hardware you may need, and a discussion about hoisting things up and down the tower. The guy on the ground should always have the job of keeping sidewalk supervisors away from the base area of the tower. Even a quarter twenty zinc plated nut falling 80 feet onto the top of an unprotected skull can leave a permanent dent, not to mention a thud that will be ringing for hours in the victim's head. There's a good argument here for wearing a hard hat. Few hams I know of own one or even know where to buy one, so the next best thing is only one person climbing at a time. If climbing with a person already strapped on working above you, choose a different side to climb on. If you're already on the tower, but the antenna you need to work on is like six feet out on a sidearm, a different set of rules apply. It is most likely that the sidearm is fully capable of holding your weight as is. My personal rule is to never totally trust any part of the tower. This includes sidearms. So I bring along my trusty 15-foot strap. This yellow strap is very lightweight but fully capable of pulling a snowbound car out of a ditch. I attach one end of this strap to my harness and the other to a tower leg about 5 feet or more above the point where the sidearm mounts. This strap is strong enough to catch the full weight of the sidearm, myself, and my cargo. If you're expecting to work on a sidearm, I strongly recommend you invest in one of these rescue type straps. Copy down my URL at the end of this segment if you don't know where to start looking for this type of information. Not only did I want this series to offer safety tips, I also wanted to offer hints to make the job go faster and easier. The way I figure, an easier climb is bound to be a safer climb. So let's cover a couple of quick hints. For your tower work, attach them to a short piece of fishing line. Use the woven multi-filament type. Make it long enough to tie a wrist strap in the other end. And tie the other end to the tool you don't wish to drop. If you have a friend with a leather working hobby, a good Christmas present would be a whole bunch of these straps. 
You can keep your tools securely on your arm and in your hand with one of these straps. Remember to order them large enough to fit around your arm when you're wearing cold weather climbing gear. Another one of my favorites is my coaxial cable hanger. I bent the hook in a piece of reinforcing steel bar, the type used in concrete work and often sold at hardware stores. I bent a squared hook in one end, about 3 inches over and 5 inches back down, sort of like a giant fishing hook. I use electrical tape to hold the coax onto the rod, then I'm bringing up the tower as I climb. I secure about 2 feet of the coax to the rod. As I climb, I reach down, grab the hook, and lift it to a tower rung up as high as I can reach. Don't forget a short piece of rope to secure the coax hook to a loop on your climbing belt just in case you might drop it. Some people like to lift coax after they get to the antenna that it connects to. I've had problems with coax damage doing it this way, so this has worked fine for me. I stretch out the coax on the ground and the crew helps feed it up to me as I climb further. This would probably not work on very long lengths and may be unnecessary on shorter towers. Remember, any time you spend learning about tower safety is an investment in yourself. Education is a big part of tower safety. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio. Initial reports indicate considerable interest among amateurs in tracking and capturing data from the newly deployed Husky Sat-1. The satellite, designed at the University of Washington, was launched to the International Space Station last November and subsequently deployed into a higher orbit from the ISS on January 31st. It began telemetry transmissions on 435.800 MHz. Husky Sat-1's 1200 BPS BPSKB beacon is now active and decodable with the latest release of AMSAT's Fox Telem software. The Husky Sat-1 CubeSat will demonstrate onboard plasma propulsion and high-gain telemetry for low-Earth orbit that could be a precursor for an attempt at a larger CubeSat designed for orbital insertion at the Moon. Husky Sat-1 is expected to carry out its primary mission before being turned over to AMSAT for activation of a 30 kHz wide V-U linear transponder for sideband and CW. Several CubeSats were deployed from the ISS on February 12th, including Phoenix, a 3U CubeSat developed by Arizona State University to study the effects of urban heat islands through remote infrared sensing. The Arizona State University operations team would appreciate help from the amateur satellite community with identifying the spacecraft and verifying that it is operational following its deployment at 0830 UTC. Two CubeSats being deployed on February 12th, Phoenix and Carmen, share the frequency of 437.35 MHz and utilize an AX.25-9600 baud protocol with GMSK modulation. Both CubeSats will be deployed within an hour and a half of each other. They will be close to each other in orbit. More information is available on the Phoenix website. Retired Ohio State University professor Robert Dixon, W8ERD, says a documentary about the 1977 discovery of a signal from the cosmos detected by the Ohio State University Radio Telescope is now available from at least one Internet video site and was to become available from Amazon and Google Play. The so-called WOW signal is regarded as the best candidate for a signal originating from extraterrestrial intelligence. Dixon directed the radio telescope program. Dixon says the award-winning 88-minute film, WOW Signal, is available on Fandango now. The documentary's trailer is free. The film itself is available for rent or purchase. Mitsuo Kasai, JA1WQF, successfully decoded a 47 gigahertz signal bounced off the moon on February 10th 
by Al Ward, W5LUA. More tests are planned. Ward posted news of the achievement on the MoonNet email reflector. These were one-way tests with only me transmitting, he said, in his post. I started out by sending single tones to Mitsu, which he copied well, and then sent several sequences of calls and grid. Mitsuo was able to decode calls and my grid at 1146 UTC and 1234 UTC. Signal levels were 23 dB and 25 dB. Ward noted that the first Earth-Moon-Earth contact on 47 gigahertz took place in early 2005. More 47 gigahertz tests are being run in the next few days with Manfred, DL7YC, Ward said. We hope for similar success. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air, available as a podcast on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartMedia, and Spotify. And finally this week, archaeologists from the Rhineland Regional Council were amazed when they came across a Russian spy radio instead of Roman traces in the Hombach open-cast mine during excavations, hidden in a large metal box. When the box was opened, it hissed Dr. Eric Claussen, head of the LVR Office for the Preservation of Archaeological Monuments in the Rhineland, told journalists. In the container was a Soviet radio type R394KM, codenamed Stryj, a digital HF spy radio. It was developed in the early 1980s in the Soviet Union and used by the countries of the Warsaw Pact in the final phase of the Cold War. It was the last model before the fall of the Iron Curtain in 1989 and the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1992. The device has a digital news system and a digital frequency display. It was used by agents abroad as well as by special units and was available with Russian or English text on the front. The spy version is known by the Russian code name Stryj, or translated, it means swift. Many of the news and information items heard on This Week in Amateur Radio have been provided by the American Radio Relay League's ARRL Letter and Audio News Service, AMSAT, the Radio Amateurs of Canada, The Rain Report, Australia's Q News, the RSGB, NASA, the New Zealand Association of Radio Transmitters, amateur radio websites around the world, news sources on the internet, and the packet bulletin board systems of the United States and Canada. This Week in Amateur Radio is produced by Community Video Associates Incorporated. Now for the staff of This Week in Amateur Radio, this is Jeff Rahner, WB2AEQ, saying 73 until next week. This Week in Amateur Radio is copyright Community Video Associates Incorporated. All rights reserved.